The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran we just finished the 21st main street vegan academy program which means that 19 people from four countries have been here in new york city for the past week becoming certified vegan lifestyle coaches and educators learning from a dozen amazing instructors and i actually teach a few of the classes myself i was doing one yesterday afternoon called helping the client who deals with weight issues emotional eating and food addiction and i said in that class most people don't understand these issues at all So if you're going to read anybody, read Julie M. Simon. And she just happens to be our guest in the first segment of this program. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan Show. You can find out more about me and all the stuff that I do at MainStreetVegan.net. We'd love to have you over there. Love to have you subscribe to our our blog and and other mailings and just stay in the loop with Main Street Vegan goings on. After the break, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm going to be introducing a gentleman and his his other half, Dr. Richard Pitcairn and his wife, Susan Pitcairn. This man was a famous veterinarian 30 years ago, his book about the holistic care of companion animals has been a mega long-term, decades-long bestseller. And guess what? In the past decade, Dr. Richard Pitt Karen and his wife, Susan, have become vegan, and they are now experts in feeding dogs vegan and maybe even some cats. There's a little controversy for you, but that's after the break. Right now, I want to introduce you to this woman that I respect so much. If you've been listening to this show for a long time, you may remember that she was a very popular guest a while back with her book, The Emotional Eater's Repair Manual, and now she has a brand new beautiful book, When Food is Comfort. Julie Simon also founded the popular LA-based and online 12-week emotional eating recovery program, and she offers workshops at Whole Foods and UCLA. 
in the Los Angeles area where she lives, and you can visit her online at overeatingrecovery.com. Welcome, Julie Simon. Hi there, Victoria. I'm so happy to be back with you. Well, I am happy to be back with you, and I am happy that there's a new book because the world can use it. You know, this whole thing about eating, overeating, emotional eating has gotten so complex because there's also this idea of stay away from my food. You know what? I've, I've been on 150 diets and, and I've been to therapists and I just don't want to deal with it anymore. So what do you do? How do you help people who do want to work on a more balanced relationship with food without joining in on this kind of some bodies are better than others kind of nonsense? Yeah, it's the some bodies are better than others, and it's also the constant, you know, diet mentality. You have to start to ditch, you know, the diet mentality, stop looking for the next diet and begin to really reconnect with yourself. And my books are all about learning how to reconnect with yourself, with your mind, body, and spirit signals, and nourish yourself and nurture yourself with the loving kindness that you crave, you know, so that you can make better food choices. And I think today, you know, we've got we've got so much going on. Everyone's got so much going on that we're very disconnected from ourselves and from our inner world. And that's what uh, this book helps you get back to, get back to connecting to yourself. Mm. You are so calming. Just your voice. I hope this is going to be an audio book, too. (laughs) I would love to have you read your beautiful book to me. So tell us a little bit about your history, Julie. Were you once a practicing emotional eater? I was definitely an emotional eater. And I, you know, I I think a lot of women especially can relate because, you know, we we hit our teens and our early 20s and most of us start to put on a little bit of weight, you know, a little bit of puberty pudge and then a little bit of college pudge and um, and then we start, you know, especially here in the United States, then we start <clears throat> looking for those diets and uh, I did all of that as did my sister and my mother, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, <clears throat> I was never very good at sticking with diets uh, and I was kind of chronically stuck in a cycle of overeating my favorite comfort foods gaining weight, and then dieting again. And and I intuitively knew that we were not designed for this. I intuitively knew that you know, animals in the wild don't you know weigh and measure their food. And they maintain their weight in an optimum range. Uh, our ancestors didn't weigh and measure food. You know, we didn't have scales way back then. We didn't have food scales or people scales. So I knew that something was off with all of this, and I was kind of on a quest to figure out all the pieces of the overeating puzzle, especially in my own life. And I slowly began to piece things together. I found, realized and found out through therapy and visits to healthcare practitioners uh, that I was an emotional eater. I was using food to calm and soothe myself. It was helping numb the pain of unpleasant emotions, self-doubts, and other negative thoughts. Food altered my brain chemistry, and because food is so pleasurable and exciting, it was really a good distraction, and it filled up an inner emptiness. What I came to understand was that I entered adulthood, and I was missing a lot of basic self-care skills, like the ability to move through 
unpleasant emotional states, as I said before, to comfort and soothe myself, reframe those self-defeating thoughts and regulate my nervous system. And even though my parents were well-intentioned, they were also missing these skills. And then I began to understand some uh, body and brain imbalances that I had, low brain chemicals uh, that were causing me to select certain foods and stimulants like caffeine, um, allergies that I had that were causing specific attractions to certain foods. So there were all these pieces to the overeating puzzle, and as I began to put them all together, my life was dramatically improving, and I knew that I wanted to help others do this same thing. Very early on in my journey, I knew that I wanted to help others do this. Oh, that's wonderful, because so many people, and as you say, so many women deal with this. Now, you have a a term that I think some people who have dealt with food issues, as I certainly have, it's a hard term. You talk about mastering the skill of self-regulation, which is so much in that self-control restriction kind of vernacular, but it means something very different. Can you help us understand that? Yeah, self-regulation does kind of, it sounds kind of clinical and, uh, and like you say, kind of restrictive. But it's really not about that at all. I mean, recent advances in brain science have actually uncovered the crucial role that our social, that our early social and emotional environment plays in the development of imbalanced eating patterns. So when we don't receive enough consistent and sufficient emotional nurturance during our early years, our brain gets wired for kind of a high level of reactivity. And then it makes it more difficult for us to soothe ourselves, and it leaves us at greater risk for seeking comfort from external sources like food. So when our brains get wired for high reactivity, we tend to be more under the influence of an emotionally dominant part of the brain, what we call the downstairs part of the brain. And, And it's hard for us to use logical arguments, you know, to to guide our behaviors. So it would be difficult for us to say, many of us can say, I know that um, cheesy noodle dish, you know, is not healthy for me, even though it's vegan. You know, I know that uh, vegan pizza is not the healthiest choice maybe for me, um, I, and it would be good for, or the, you know, sweet potato fries, uh, it would be good for me to eat more vegetables, but I can't, I tell myself to do that, but I can't do that. Or I'm eating way too many cookies every night, and I know that's not healthy for me, but I, there isn't a logical argument that I can use that gets me to regulate my behavior. Well, that's because you're under the influence of an emotionally dominant part of the brain, and we want to connect, we want to get those connections in the brain working to the top part of the brain, the upstairs part of the brain, where that word, the term that we use, self-regulation, where that occurs, okay? That's the part of the brain that's logical, rational. That's also the part of the brain that can soothe and comfort us. So when we don't get enough sufficient and consistent emotional nurturance when we're young, those inner, those circuits between those parts of the brain don't develop well and they don't communicate well. And we end up being more, as I said earlier, under the influence of the emotional brain. So what does mastering the skill of self-regulation really mean? Self-regulation refers to our ability to manage our emotions and our moods, to regulate our nervous system, 
control or redirect impulses and behaviors, disruptive impulses like cravings. And think about, uh, think about things before we act. So in order for us to master this skill, the upstairs logical and soothing part of the brain has to be well connected or properly wired with the downstairs emotional brain. And what research is now showing is that the brain is very plastic or moldable, something called neuroplasticity. So we can rewire the brain through a mindfulness practice, and that's what this new book is all about. And P.S., let me just say one thing, that this book is never about bashing parents. Um, When I say that we didn't get enough sufficient and consistent emotional nurturance, I believe that, you know, parenting is the hardest job in the world, and 99.9% of all parents are attempting to do the best they can with their children. But sometimes parents themselves are missing some skills or don't really know how, you know, to comfort and soothe their children properly, or they're distracted or they're working two jobs. Um, so it's never about parent bashing, really just looking at what happened to your, to your brain and what's causing you to have struggles with self-regulation. So for those of us who are quite a few years away from toddlerhood when some of these <laughs> things started, what do we do? How do we fix it? Well, the good news is is that now we can practice mindfulness. What we needed to get when we were very young is something called attunement, very good attunement. Caregivers that are really tuned into our emotional world and helping us understand ourselves, understand our emotions and our needs and thoughts. And if we didn't quite get enough of that and our brain didn't quite get wired uh, the right way or the most effective way, we can now learn something called internal attunement where we go inward and we learn how to pay attention to our, all of our internal signals, our emotions, our bodily sensations, our needs, those self-defeating thoughts that derail our behaviors. Learn to pay gentle, kind, non-judgmental, compassionate attention to all of those internal signals and then learn how to deal with those. So that's what this book is all about. It's all about a mindfulness practice teaching you how to pop the hood, just like a master mechanic, go inward and understand what's going on when you keep grabbing, you know, the pizza, uh, when you say you're going to have a healthy dinner and then you, you know, pick your favorite comfort food instead all the time. What's going on inside? You know, we can be, we can practice mindful eating, which is paying attention to, you know, the texture and the taste and uh, our choices of food, but we can also practice being mindful of the emotions, the bodily sensations, the needs, and the thoughts that drive our eating behavior. Well, it's a beautiful book, When Food is Comfort, Nurture Yourself Mindfully, Rewire Your Brain, and End Emotional Eating. So just in our last couple of minutes, Julie, if you could offer just one piece of encouragement or or advice to an emotional eater, what would that be? I always want to tell emotional eaters that 100% recovery is possible. Don't ever feel that you're going to be stuck in this for life. You do not have to be stuck in this for life. There are people like me who have been, who have walked in those shoes, that walked ahead of you, who have complete 100% recovery. They're not busy 
I'm not on any diet plan. I'm not on any restricted plan. I don't have forbidden foods, <clears throat> but I know how to take care of myself and my body with food, eating the most wholesome foods. I don't have any struggle in those arenas anymore. So there is recovery. Uh, pick up my book. You can go to my website and get two free chapters of both the books. Get started reading. And just know there are professionals out there that can help you and that you can end this struggle with yourself, your food, and your body. Ooh, amen to that. And that's also my history and my life. And it is no longer a struggle. It is no longer a problem. But it's certainly given me a lot of empathy for for people who do deal with it. And I love the way you say there is 100% recovery. There is light at the end of this tunnel. And then you get to go deal with life's other challenges. (laughs) And life's other, you know, blissful joys. Amen. Amen to that. Julie's wonderful publisher, New World Library, has given us a copy of this book to give away. Well, here's how we're going to do this. Go to Instagram, follow Main Street Vegan, and I'm going to take a picture of the cover of this book, and I am going to say, tell me why you would like to have this book. And there will be a winner, and maybe it'll be you. But you know what? Anybody who picks up a copy of One Food is Comfort will be a winner. And we'll put all of Julie's information on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Thank you ever so much, Julie, for taking the time today to be my guest and also taking a lot of time to write this beautiful helpful uh, book. So everybody else, stay with us. We're going to be back talking about natural health for dogs and cats with Dr. Richard and Susan Pitcairn right after this. Wouldn't you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. Spirit of Recovery is the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth. Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D., interviews down-to-earth guests who share with you how they keep going and growing in recovery. Spirit of Recovery is the place to get practical tips and join in lively discussions on topics that matter to recovering people. This program welcomes everyone who wants to know more about recovery. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time on Spirit of Recovery, where we talk about what keeps you growing. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Somewhere, tucked away in the Unity Library archives in Unity Village, Missouri, you can find a secret treasure. They are the scripts from Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore's early days on broadcast radio. The teachings of Unity's founders, almost a hundred years old. Now, for the first time in history, you can hear them through the power of the Internet. 
Join Bob Brock every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, for Unity Classic Radio, words from our past. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore's talks and of other Unity Radio speakers read on the air again. Call in your comments and questions as Bob and his special guests revisit Unity Radio talks of the past, along with historical background from the early days of the Unity movement. That's Unity Classic Radio. Words from our past, every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, right here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. The benefits of spiritually conscious living start now. For a time-tested method to live with purpose and release your infinite potential, tune in to The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. I love it when serendipity happens, and it just did. Because when Julie Simon, our first guest, heard who our second and third guests are, um, she said, oh, let Dr. Pitcairn know that his book was so, so instrumental in my life. And it happened that they were able to chat a little bit in person. So that's a wonderful thing. The book, which I believe is in its fourth edition now, is Dr. Pitcairn's Complete Guide to Natural Health for Dogs and Cats by Richard H. Pitcairn, DVM, PhD, and Susan Hubble Pitcairn. All that information is going to be in the show notes. So for those of you who have not been trying to care for your companion animals holistically for a good long time now and perhaps are not familiar with the Pitcairns, the outcome of 50 years of veterinary experience has resulted in the fourth edition of the Complete Guide to Natural Health for Dogs and Cats. And in this book, there's an emphasis on a reevaluation of the best way to provide maximum health through nutrition and alternative medical care. And what is really unique about this book, you guys are going to love this, I mean, the way this vegan ethic is coming out in the world is so, so exciting that this book is bringing in the concern for all the earth and its resources and the treatment of other animals. Don't you think sometimes, you know, we love the cats, the dogs, the parakeets, but what about the cows and pigs and chickens? Welcome. Dr. Pitcairn, Susan Pitcairn, what a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you for the work that you do on your show day after day. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. So I wanted to go back a little bit in history because I was a fan back from the first edition and had uh, four cats at that time and and really (laughs) used this book as as quite um, a resource. 
Now, at that time, you weren't talking about plant-based diets for pets or people or anybody, but you were still kind of a renegade. You were still into holistic ideas that I sure didn't get from my local veterinarian. So give us a little bit of where you came from. You know, Victoria, we also we actually did have some Victor- some vegetarian choices in the first edition uh, way back in 1981. Yes, and we also emphasized in our recipes for that first edition the use of grains and vegetables, and that was different too at that time. Well, I'm glad you brought up the word grains because I was <laughs> in a pet food store the other day just perusing and seeing what was there And I don't think I could find anything that didn't say grain-free. It was almost like in human world, gluten-free. But everything for the pets is grain-free, grain-free. Is there something wrong with grains? It's very interesting that there's been such a movement because there's no science behind it. There's a lot of science behind that that animals, and and dogs in particular, uh, evolved some 10,000 years ago, uh, extra DNA compared to wolves that produces amylase that digests starches. And that was part and parcel of, of them associating with humans in our early agricultural civilizations. So this thing that's come up lately, it seemed to be to kind of coincide with the paleo and Atkins trend, trends for human beings. And we think it's pretty crazy, really. But there it is, you know, and so... But we're finding all kinds of people that are succeeding feeding uh, dogs, especially, and even cats, a healthy, home-prepared vegan diet that includes grains. Uh, the emphasis is a little bit more on legumes because of the higher, their higher protein needs. So this is absolutely fascinating to me because I wouldn't want to feed any human that I cared about an Atkins kind of diet. <laughs> so, and yet the, the argument that I hear and, and one that I've actually made because it kind of makes sense in my brain and maybe you can disavow me of, of this, uh, this idea. I look at my dog and I even, okay, Dr. Barnard, Dr. Neil Barnard, wonderful um, plant-based physician, right. has a slide in one of his presentations of a cat yawning and you see those sharp canine teeth and Dr. Barnard says, if you look in the mirror and you look like this, then go have some meat, which is kind of <laughs> clever. And and even dogs, you know, the shape of the leg, the teeth, the, they just seem like carnivores, not to mention that my dog really thinks squirrels are for dinner. So, right, of course, obviously they're carnivores. I mean, by nature, you know, that's how they evolved, or, or omnivores more in the case of dogs. Uh, but, I mean, wild canines do eat fruit and you know like berries and things and 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 we'll eat greens and things like that but yes i mean that's that's true but what we think is really important is the state of our planet you know and we're we're really at risk of losing some important resources as you know you know our our soils our water the amazon rainforest the oceans and all these things are are really you know as you know reliant i mean are really caused a lot by the overconsumption of animal products and um, and in the U.S., about twenty five percent of of the animal products that are consumed go to dogs and cats. So we can see a big impact. And when we learn that, for whatever reason, regardless of how they've evolved or what their teeth look like, that they can thrive on these diets and even live longer than animals who are eating 
you, you know, maybe a conventional uh, processed, you know, diet that's available in the store, or maybe even the raw food meat diet, which has become very popular, then what would, why would you not want to do that? That's how we see it. Well, I think you see that very wisely. So you also mentioned cats, and I can already tell that there are some people feeling very nervous out there listening because (laughs) what we've all been told is, yeah, dogs, you know, dogs can do this. Cats, Mm -hmm. they have to get blood tests once a month. They're going to go blind. Do you really think it's safe for cats? Well, what we have heard before, we wondered that too, and before we – we started, you know, really delving into this. We we checked around, and the scuttlebutt seemed to be amongst people who had been in the vegan movement for a long time. Like Will Tuttle told me this, that about two thirds of cats seem to do fine, and the ones and, and other people I've talked to who have been at it longer than we have confirmed that. And it, it seems like it's mostly um, older cats that have problems, and male cats. So, like a young a young female starting on this diet, and I should. And very, very importantly, one must feed a supplement such as Veggie Cat. We don't know of anything else, really. If you're going to do a fresh diet that supplies taurine and arachidonic acid and other things that cats cannot get from a plant-based diet, if you don't do that, yes, then you might the cat might have, have be at risk for retinal problems and other things. So, um, well, the other choice is to feed a prepared diet such as Ami Cat for, for cats and. You know, we know people that have had their, you know, their cats be on these for a good long time, and they're they're doing fine. Not all cats may succeed at it, but we think it's worth a try. And one way you can deal with it is to compromise. Maybe half the diet, you know, is is a conventional uh, or meat based cat food, and the other half maybe would be the vegan. Also, Victoria, if I can add to that. Um you know, the alternative, it's, it's, a, it's not a simple question. I know it sounds simple, but it's not a simple question because the alternative then would be to feed the commercial foods or what if you're fixing the food yourself to feed a, a meat diet. And the problem is that it's not healthy for cats to do that. As an example, uh, a lot of the commercial foods, if you go out and read labels like you said you did, uh, or, you know, about grain-free, You'll see a lot of them have uh, chicken or have fish in them or fish meal. Well, fish is very high in mercury, for example. So a lot of cats now are having trouble with their teeth rotting and their gums becoming inflamed and so on because they're poisoned by mercury. So it's not as simple as, oh, you shouldn't eat plants because it's not healthy. And instead, they should eat commercial food, which is poisoning them. You see the problem? I do indeed. Sure. There's as much as 30 times of more some of these heavy metals of, in seafood per pound of body weight uh, that a cat would be getting than we would. 30 times. Mm. That's, that's huge. Wow. Yeah. And also, and I, it, it seemed to me in my experience with cats, they all lived a really long time, but then they succumbed to kidney disease. I've never known a cat who died from anything else. And huh. with humans, that's too much protein very often. Is that a problem? No, I think it's toxicity. Toxicity. I don't think it's a problem with it, how much protein they get. That doesn't really reflect. Well, I can say that if, you know, we know in people, if they get too much protein, it's difficult for their kidneys because of all the nitrogen they have to excrete. But cats are, you know, of course, in a sense, designed for that. So that's not so much an issue for them. If they have less than the protein they would get, uh, say, in nature, that's not going to harm their kidneys. 
The problem okay. is it's like a toxic. And the other thing is the vaccines, which we're, we don't need to go into. But it's been reported that the vaccines cause antibodies to be formed against the kidneys. Oh, my goodness. Fascinating. Yeah. Don't a lot of cats also have mouth problems? Have you not observed that? They're, and that's one of the, the, the symptoms of mercury poisoning. That's what I was saying. Oh, you just said that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. I was looking at this other information. But, you know, so a study that was done in 2011 in Spectroscopy Magazine uh, examined about 58 pet foods. And they found uh, some very interesting things. They had 31 dry, 27 wet, about half were dogs and half cat foods. And they found out that they'd taken just a huge amount more heavy metals like uh, we mentioned the, the mercury, but also 20 times more arsenic per pound of body weight than a human, than what's considered safe by the EPA, two times more cadmium, three times more uranium. Um, that's that's cats, okay? The, a dog can be as much as 120 times more mercury uh, per pound of body weight, 20 times more arsenic, and so on. And so that says nothing about dioxin and all those other things, as, as we you probably are quite aware of. Um, you know, studies that have been done comparing the tissues of vegans in humans to uh, tissues of omnivore humans can find that vegans have as, as little as 2% of the of an array of toxins that the omnivores have. And so, of course, the same thing is going to happen with dogs and cats. Wow. Well, I know that, that for humans, we know a great argument against eating animals who live in the water is the mercury and the arsenic. But that statistic about dogs is fascinating because m- most people don't feed their dogs fish. Where's all the mercury coming from for the dogs? It's in the animals' uh, flesh and the fat. Mm. Well, also livestock is fed a lot of, of seafood by fish. Right. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the arsenic accumulates, especially uh, in in chicken kind of based foods. You know, because they they feed it to them for. Well, they, in chickens, a report came out. I think it was last year. Um, it wasn't about dogs and cats, but it was about the chicken that's sold in markets, you know, not organic chicken, but just conventional, if you will. And they found that they contain arsenic above the acceptable level by the, the was it FDA or EPA or whichever organization. And the reason is, is that the producers of chickens feed them an arsenic compound to control coccidia. And so uh, basically, all if you're eating chicken regularly, you're getting excessive amounts of arsenic, according to our government. Well, you can imagine what it is in dogs and cats because they feed that even more of it. Well, it is fascinating to me how everything is so connected. We was talking with uh, our, our first guest about emotional eating and getting out of the diet mentality. And when I think of a person in diet mentality, I'm seeing chicken <laughs> and fish. And that just sounds like a great way to be toxic, whatever your species. So yes. in this new book, this is a revolutionary book. You are talking about things that, as far as I know, no experts in animal health have ever brought out to the lay public before. So what brought all this on? Well, actually, you know how it started was we saw the film Cowspiracy. We showed it in a, at a potluck group we were doing that was really more about sustainable living, green living. And we went vegan overnight. This is in 2014. And then um, shortly after that, Rodell Press contacted us about doing another edition of our book. And we just kind of put two and two together and started asking questions. And we learned that the uh, the longest-lived dog in the world, Bramble, who was on a vegan diet, 
uh, it's been replaced by another dog, but she, she lived to like age 26. That seemed good enough, you know. <laughs> so, so we started, you know, doing research, started talking with people who'd been doing it, and uh, the people at Veggie Pet, and uh, have been making supplements to people with the manufacturer V-Dog and other kinds of, of vegan-based foods, and we were quite encouraged by what we saw, and so we really um, thought this, this is an opportunity to make a difference because, you know, like something like half of people have dogs and cats, and and so, uh, you know, we have some reputation in this field, so we thought we'd, we really better focus on this and see what we can come up with. And so we worked actually hand-in-hand uh, with Ashley uh, Bass over at, at uh, Veggie Pet when she was reformulating their supplements. And so we kind of upped to the levels of some amino acids and other things in the recipe to make sure that everything, all the recipes that we have and all the recipes that they have, match the uh, AFCO standards of the American Association of Feed Control Officers. They have certain standards like, you know, X percent of protein per calorie for dogs, for cats, so much magnesium, so much you know, all these different things. So so all of our recipes actually meet, if you follow it to the letter, actually meet these uh, requirements as far as we know, you know, according, using nutritional databases. Well, your recipes are delicious because <laughs> when I have made them, I have tasted them. <laughs> yeah. My Which personal ones? favorite are the little burgers. <laughs> yeah, oh, good, thanks. You're, yeah, you're, a lot of people like the tofu nut loaf too, or meat, tofu meatloaf, yeah. Yeah, I, I think if, if it weren't in a book for companion animals, you would have a great cookbook for people. And when you said okay. that about half the people, and I presume this is in the United States, uh, live with companion animals, I just learned that your fourth edition is being translated into Chinese and Korean to be uh, published in, in those countries. And I remember spending a lot of time in China back in the 90s, and at that time, you had to get special government permission and it was rarely granted to do what they called raise a dog. And now, you know, do you know why? Why? Oh, yeah. oh, well, I think it was part of when I was there, it was the early nineties. And so it was just a little bit past the, the Maoist era. And I think it was seen as a sort of, um, capitalist, uh, self-indulgent. Yeah. Thing, thing uh-huh. to do. But, you know, now we know it's good for health and good for the soul. So how wonderful that people around the world are going to be having access to this for the animals that they love. So um, what results are you seeing in animals who have made this change? Well, we've had um, quite a few uh, good reports from veterinarians that we, we – I still do some teaching and sharing information uh, in, in veterinarians that are being trained in. My my special interest in alternative medicine has been in homeopathy. So we have a training program for that, and we include nutrition. And we've had some really good reports. Um, I'm not really in practice myself now for the last decade, but um, we've advised friends and others to make a change. An example would be um, in our vegan potluck group here, there's a woman that just said, she just asked me, um, what do you think I should do if you have any suggestions? Because her dog has diagnosed with skin allergies and it's scratched all the time. She said day and night. It was really difficult. And she'd been going to an alternative practitioner, veterinarian, uh, for every week for some time. And I said, well, why don't you just try 
um, uh, you know, a diet without any animal products, just try a plant, because she herself is vegan. And um, why don't you just try it for a month? And she did. And the next month she told me her dog had no more symptoms. Wow. So it was quite dramatic. Yeah. Now, skin problems and, you know, and, and smelly, you know, ears and, and, and discharges and all these kinds of things seem to be one of the first things that, that people notice. Uh, if you, anybody can go onto Amazon and look at the reviews of, uh, like, Natural Balance Vegetarian Kibble or V-Dog, and you can see a lot of testimonies of people that say that, you know, that they didn't believe it that it would happen, but their dog's mm-hmm. the cat's problems cleared up. Yeah, and I think that's, to me, it's really confirmation. You know, it's like, we, I, going back to what Susan said, how we, we ourselves began to change, and then that was a stimulus to look into it more deeply, you know, the whole issue of, well, what about toxicity in food and the chemicals and the GMO and all these other things? And as I got into it, I started thinking, this is really going to, I'm thinking this is responsible, this problem of food quality and, and, and contamination is a, probably a primary factor in animals being sick chronically. Mm. And so when I had that idea, you know, um, and started investigating, and I felt there was evidence for that, but it, the confirmation comes from when the people stop feeding those animal products and the animals get better. Mm. I mean, it's just, it has to be something in the food they were eating before, doesn't it, logically? Yes. Yeah. Now, you mentioned GMO, and uh, Ami Pet was also mentioned. And um, my my dog's one vegan dry food that he will eat is, is the Ami, but it's based on corn. And what I read about human health is you should eh, maybe avoid the corn just because so much of it is GMO. Any problem there? We, have, we advise avoiding it, uh, you know, use organic products because... GMO, we don't know what the effect would be in your dog or cat because the studies haven't been done. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there are reports of it, uh, GMO, uh, corn and other products causing health problems. Uh, one study I saw, unfortunately, was a kind of study where they they killed the animals to see what happened to them. You know, mm. they fed these pigs. Um, uh, one group was fed GMO corn. The other group was. F- I, I don't remember what the control was, but it wasn't the GMO corn. Maybe it was non-GMO corn. And uh, then after a while, they killed them and looked in their bodies, and they found that pictures of their stomachs are all red and inflamed. Mm. It was quite dramatic. And also, there have been reports from other countries of livestock dying after being put on those foods. Mm-hmm. So I think it is an issue. But, Victoria, consider this. I mean, um, corn and soy and so forth are, you know, are dissed a lot for these reasons, and, and it may not be so much to do with the GMO as, to, uh, or the, you know, genetic modification of it, as to do with things like increased levels of glyphosate Roundup, you know, in in the uh, food. But where do you, think, you know, what's that's what the livestock are eating, and they're concentrating it in their tissue. So if you're, you know, we don't know of evidence, to, you know, to say like, well, this diet that has meat in it has more glyphosate in it versus the one that just just has the corn in it mm-hmm. but my guess would be based on everything we know that there would be more in the in the animal food that makes so much sense yeah. so much sense so let's get just really practical for a few minutes and talk about what we're going to feed our dogs it, it homemade let's start with homemade let's get in the kitchen and be really creative Uh, 
Well, my favorite recipe for, especially if you have several large dogs, is our lentil stew recipe. And um, this is based on what um, Anne Heritage fed her long-lived dog Bramble that I mentioned earlier. And this is basically um, like the the recipe would be like um, you know a couple, uh, two cups of dried lentils, two cups of brown rice, um, and you cook them, and then with uh, about a cup of veggies, and you vary the veggies and so forth, and then you you just uh, you can add some textured soy protein. You don't really have to. Um, and then nutritional yeast, a little little nutritional yeast, ground black seeds, soy sauce, tahini, and a bit of veggie dog. So uh, what Anne did was that she made this every day for five big dogs, and she just and she cooked it for about an hour, just kind of a stew. That's actually it sounded like when I read her, but pretty much all she fed, except she was always changing out uh, the vegetables, you know, different days, things she get fresh organic from her garden, and she didn't actually use the veggie dog. So. Well, it's not as necessary for dogs as it is for cats to have that mm-hmm. supplement. So, um, and her dogs did fine. I mean, not only the, she had the one that um, the Welsh Border Collie lived to, you know, 26, but she had a German Shepherd um, that lived to 15, which is pretty long for them, and another Welsh Border Collie that lived to 20. And i just give you another example, too, that something that inspired us. Our colleague, Alan Schoen, a veterinarian who's written some books, um, was sharing with us that he had a client come in one time with a dog named Joy. <laughs> it was a mixed breed, kind of mid-sized dog, very uh, joyful, enthusiastic, energetic, and looked good, good coat, good teeth. And this was the dog's first visit to a veterinarian. And Joy was 20 years old. Ah! And, <laughs> and he asked uh, her, you know, what are you feeding? And she said, well, you know, kind of a little bit sheepishly because she thought he wouldn't approve. She said, I've been feeding a healthy vegan diet, you know, with healthy additions and supplements and, you know, some, you know, flax oil and this and that. And, and uh, you know, and pretty much what I eat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what Rick Esselstein also told me. He, he feeds his dog what he eats. Wow. And, yeah. So, you know, they, they're really quite adaptable. And if, if you look on Wikipedia on the topic of dog food, and then you look at the history of dog food, you'll see a number of, of uh, quotes from ancient writers who say, you know, the thing to feed the dog is, you know, uh, beans and little, you know, and a little bread, you know, basically, and maybe maybe a little tad of, you know, the, uh, the leavings from the stew pot. In other words, for hundreds of years, people have been feeding dogs primarily beans and grains. And this te- tendency to feed raw meat is a luxury. It is kind of a bourgeois luxury, actually, if I might say so. Um, to to do that now, we think we can because we have, we, because we can right now because meat is subsidized, you know, and because we're destroying the planet to create it. But it, it, we just can't do this much longer. It's not really going to be a choice. So I mean, there's uh, a, a not perfectly healthy dog is that is healthier than a dog that can't even exist because there's not enough food for it. Right. I I was so fortunate at the uh, Sedona Veg Fest this year to get to have a really nice long conversation with you, Dr. Pitt Karen, about my dog Forbes, who is so picky. I think he is a a cat who wears a dog suit. (laughs) And so what how does one transition if you have one of these dogs who looks at the food and says, excuse me, I don't eat that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, 
Well, we have information on that. Um, uh, it, usually, our experience with dogs, at least, is they, they generally will just accept it immediately. Um, but as, as you say with your dog, there are some. Uh, I'm speaking now from more of my clinical experience, okay? Because, as I said earlier, I focused a lot on using homeopathy as my method of treatment. <coughs> Excuse me. And I found some occasional dogs that had trouble, like you described. But I interpreted that as having some kind of a health issue. And so then I would get the details of the way they acted. For example, some dogs may, when you offer them food, they'll sniff it and walk away. Others will go ahead and take a bite or two, but then they won't eat any more. Some will eat some, but then they act like it makes them sick and they throw up and so on. So there's different patterns. But whatever it is, I would give the appropriate homeopathic remedy to them, and then they would that would go away, and they could eat whatever without any problem. So that's the way I approached it. But I would say that, um, you know, with dogs that, it's usually not an issue of most of them, the great majority. Uh, can, you want to add to that? Yeah, but, but that said, um, you know, Jan Allegretti, who wrote a book called The Complete Holistic uh, Dog Book, um, mm-hmm. has done another new edition also. And she's been one of our advisors because she's fed her dogs vegan for a long time. And her they've outlived their uh, contempor- their, great their, their peers. Great Danes that lived. It's a 13. That's <laughs> wow. So Unusual, what, yeah. she's advised a lot of other people on this, and what she found has found is that to make food more palatable, um, it helps to do things like, like the following: to add oil, it can be coconut, flax, olive, hemp, and so on; to add spirulina or blue-green algae or powdered seaweed. Uh, cats like the seaweed especially. Nutritional yeast, both species like that. Uh, tomato sauce is a good topping. Um, some soy milk. Um, I, you know, tofu would be good too. Um, you can even use some earth balance, um, you know, buttery spread. Uh, and if you have a vegan uh, broth or gravy that you've made that's delicious, that that does a lot for them too. And uh, a, few, a few little mushrooms and things like that I think can be helpful as well. In our book, we have some tasty tidbit kind of recipes at the end of, of each section on dogs and cats, things you can add to kind of make it more palatable. Wonderful. And anyone listening, if you are a pet parent, if you are a pet grandparent, this book, Dr. Pitt Karen's Complete Guide to Natural Health for Dogs and Cats, it's just a must. You know, it's like being pregnant and not getting what to expect when you're expecting. I mean, yeah. you need this book if there are uh, companion animals in your life. Now, when we're starting to feed, let's start with dogs and then we'll move to cats, plant foods. What are the plant foods that we should not be sharing with them? Mm. Well, there's a general uh, statement that to, that's made in kind of the, the pet feeding world to not feed onions, chocolate, uh, grapes. Um, not, not not everybody agrees with this, these different statements, but I mean we have, we have a list in our book of some of these things that people caution about. Um, but pretty much, you know, it's mostly the same foods that we can eat. Um, you know, if they, if they like it, you know, then good. But you know, you wouldn't want to. Of course, feed a lot of sugar and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I can add just I can add from my clinical experience. I, all the years I was in practice, I never saw, I never had a, a situation where anybody brought a dog to me that had been made sick by a food they fed. You know, I mean, I I don't mean like the well, commercial food. I mean like they gave them grapes and they got really sick yeah, or whatever. Right. I never saw anything like that. And you know, it's also I I find that a lot of it is really exaggerated. 
Uh, we talk about this in our last edition here. For example, from the very first edition, I recommended using some garlic uh, because it's a very wonderful herb for various things, uh, dealing with worms and other problems, but not in large quantities. But the veterinary profession says, oh, well, garlic is poisonous to dogs. That's their attitude, you know. Currently. But but I've never seen that ha- be a problem. Anyway, I did some research for this last edition. I said, where did that come from, this idea that garlic was so poisonous to dog? And I found one study. And the study was they had taken, a, I think it was beagles, and they had taken ground up and extracted 130 cloves of garlic that they then gave my stomach tube to these 30-pound oh. beagles every day for a week. Yeah, oh. that could cause some problems. And then they found that there were some blood changes, and the, the blood uh, the cells looked a little different. But there were no symptoms, and there was no anemia or anything. And that abnormal thing they did ended up not making them sick, and they still concluded it was toxic. And that said, (laughs) you know, another interesting thing is that if you also search online for the top food allergens for both dogs and cats, you know, nearly all of them are animal products. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of dogs are allergic to beef or chicken or, you know, like like it used to be in in practice, Richard found that, you know, some some people said their dogs couldn't eat beef, for example, so then they fed them, you know, switched them to a lamb and brown rice diet or something like that. But over time, the allergies have spread, you know, so like now a lot of dogs are allergic to lamb. So uh, that's, mm-hmm. you know, so now now they're getting into feeding kangaroo and buffalo. I mean, it's ridiculous. We, we're just, you know, raping the planet, you know, looking for solutions that really are not going to work. And this, and this is also what Susan's describing, where you try to find these alternative diets for your dog that has allergies. It's not a solution because you're you're still dealing with the disease that could be corrected. Right. That's the solution is to correct and bring their health back. Once their health is back, then you don't have to feed these odd things. But you're being logical. And and we live on Earth. (laughs) That's my weakness. Yeah. 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 Well, there there is actually a very, now that you mentioned that, there is a very emotional component to this. There really is. We've observed that. I mean, some people get almost vitriolic about it. And, and feel that if you recommend feeding anything other than raw organic meat, maybe some deer they just shot or something to their dog, like you're you're somehow uh, offending them. It's immoral. It's a it's immoral. Like you're. I mean, some people have actually said some pretty nasty stuff to us. So I mean, <laughs> and I've had pe- I've had people tell me that you know they'll say how you know put it even in terms of well you look like you said earlier you look at a dog's mouth you see the teeth and you see the kind of body they have they're carnivores they're supposed to eat meat. I've even heard people say God made them that way. They were designed that way. And they're they're making their objection as they're munching a hamburger. Right. And they're frugivores. <laughs> and they're apartments. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for all you have done for these beautiful beings over all these decades. Thank you for joining the vegan fold and extending your influence out even further. So everybody, Dr. Pitt Karen's complete guide to natural health for dogs and cats. Also check out their YouTube channel, the Richard Pitt Karen, P-I-T-C-A-I-R-N channel. Our first guest's book, Julie Simon, When Food is Comfort. Thanks to our engineer, Jeff Comfort and to Unity Online Radio, and to all of you, my very valued listeners, God bless you. Eat your veggies.
Hi, I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.